Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear and t-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombus. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com/acast and use code acast for 20% off your first purchase. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number 1 in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, Alarmy. Before we get started, we wanted to make sure you heard the big news. The Alarmist has joined Patreon. Patreon subscribers will get access to our content ad-free, as well as our aftermath post-interview discussion and final verdict. We'll also be putting out additional bonus episodes and other fun stuff. Here's a preview of our Little Alarms series, only available on Patreon. Four plays into the first game mm -hmm. with Aaron Rodgers. He tears his Achilles. Oh. And he's out for the season. See ya. Out for the season. That's People terrible. are just tearing all the things. Ace, the uh, what is it? LUs. The, the AC. The ACLU is. Okay, this is a different <laughs> thing, though. Different <laughs> no, that's a different thing. I don't uh -huh. know if his civil liberties have been infringed upon by the by the defense. Although it's possible that possible. they have. Yeah. Um. But his 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 Achilles. Okay, yeah, and Achilles. that's bad. Go to Patreon.com/slash/TheAlarmist and subscribe today. Now on to our episode. Each week we decide who's to blame for a historical tragedy, and each week you tell us if we got it right. My name is Rebecca Delgado Smith, and this is the Aftermath. The Aftermath. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning into this episode of the Aftermath. Today, we're speaking with guest expert, Dr. Susan Colburn. Dr. Colburn is a historian of modern international affairs, as well as the associate director of the program in American Grand Strategy at Duke University in the Sanford School of Public Policy. 
Let's hear what she has to say about the Berlin Wall. Hi, Susie. Thank you so much for joining us today. Wonderful. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. So I'd love to start off by going back in time and just just before the 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 end of World War II. It's beginning to be clear that the Allied forces are going to win. And did they have? Do you know if they had a plan for after they defeated uh, the Axis powers and Hitler's, or what kind of post-war strategy are they facing here? Yeah, it's a good question. The problem isn't that there isn't a plan. The problem is that there are too many plans and everyone is arguing about what the post-war world will look like. Uh, you, When you have a coalition of allies with different governmental systems, with different geography, different history, different priorities, needless to say, the way that they thought the post-war world should be shaped, they couldn't always agree. Uh, and so even as they're fighting together, pushing the Nazis back into Berlin, uh, into Germany. They are arguing about what they should do with that future Germany, what it will look like, uh, and, and how much they should punish the Germans for having unleashed this war uh, in the first place. So the the final uh, sort of post uh, June 1944, the D-Day landings, right, that last year or so, the war is filled with uh, a lot of fighting on the battlefield, of course, but also a lot of fighting around the conference tables and in memos about what the world is going to look like once Nazi Germany has been defeated. Now, after the war, Germany is split into four territories. What are these territories and what is the rationale behind splitting them up this way? Yeah, so what they end up deciding is on an occupation by four powers. So initially they think about three, and then they end up bringing in the French uh, as part of it. So you have France, the United Kingdom, the United States, and the Soviet Union as uh, occupying powers of Germany. They have a similar arrangement for Austria, which is now no longer going to be part of Germany because the Germans have lost uh, the war. And so the rationale is that you will have these four occupying powers who share responsibility to administer Germany while they figure out a peace treaty. The problem is they uh, don't figure out a peace <laughs> treaty. Uh, and so then you have a an occupation regime that evolves over, over time and ends up becoming two Germanys. A West Germany that's made out of the French zone, the British zone, and the American zone in the West, uh, hence West Germany, it being its colloquial name. Uh, And then in the East, you have the Soviet zone becomes uh, the GDR, the German Democratic Republic. Now, I'm just curious, why was France the last one to be brought in? So France has a more complicated wartime history, maybe, than uh, some of the other allied powers. And, And so... There's, there's a lot of debate about what role France should play, because, of course, during the, uh, World War II, France had been divided into two states occupied by, by Nazi Germany, right? Mm. So Vichy France in the south uh, and and then a, a sort of occupied uh, France with not Nazi forces in, in the north. And so but they had continued to, to fight on the Allied side uh, under the banner of, of free France, uh, most commonly associated with General Charles de Gaulle, who goes on to be French president uh, later. And so so the French end up brought in, but but that sort of wartime legacy means that they're not automatically uh, at the table in the first iterations of the scheme. 
Interesting. Okay. Potsdam Agreement. What is the Potsdam Agreement? And how did it shape the restructuring uh, of Germany? Or at least what were the big takeaways? So the the Potsdam Agreement is a, it's a product of a, a meeting between the big three, as they were often known. So the leaders of the United Kingdom, the United States, and the Soviet Union. So in Potsdam, the, the three who meet are uh, the American president, Harry Truman, the Soviet leader, Joseph Stalin. First, the British prime minister, Winston Churchill, but there's an election in the middle. Churchill is turfed out of office as a thank you for uh, the British war effort and replaced by Clement Attlee, who arrives partway through the conference. The, the Potsdam meeting and the agreement are really critical for the future shape of Germany because it is there that they... The three powers agree to a demilitarized Germany, to a disarmed Germany, and one that's going to be occupied in these four zones, right? British, French, American, and Soviet. And so this is really the basis for a policy that is thinking about how they will strip Germany of key ways that it might make war in the future. So Mm. uh, thinking about this is where they dismantle and uh, abolish a German military and paramilitary forces. The production of military hardware is prohibited in the Potsdam Agreement. And, and there is a big push for to repeal the discriminatory laws that had been introduced by the Nazi state and also to start to um, hold some of those Nazi officials to account, right? That mm-hmm. there would be a denazification of of German society. So what kind of economic toll had World War II taken in Europe, in Germany? How did the four allies differ in their way of thinking in terms of reparations and how that should be dealt with? Yeah, the experience of the allied powers in the war is really a product of geography. So for the United States, right, that is a period we know to be the beginning of a huge boom in the American economy. And World War II helps in many ways lift the American economy out of the doldrums of the Great Depression, puts it on this post-war boom uh, with all the hallmarks we associate with 1950s America in, in, you know, caricature and in reality. Uh, The the British economy suffers uh, considerable damage France is occupied, uh, as are many of France's neighbors who also share a border with Germany. Uh, And so that experience of occupation, of uh, just total dislocation of their societies is is hugely crushing to not only the economies of many of these European countries, but also to morale and societal cohesion. But the economic destruction felt in Eastern Europe and in in the Soviet war effort is immense. I, I mean, the toll that it takes on Soviet society to fight on the Eastern Front is incredible, and the Soviets pay a huge price in blood and treasure uh, to push the Nazis, repel the the invasion after 1941, back uh, into Germany. And so, that experience really informs the way that many that the Allied powers argue about what reparations should look like. Uh, and the Soviets in particular are very interested in getting whatever they can to uh, pay for this uh, costly conflict. Uh, and so one of the first pieces of friction that happens between the four allies over the occupation 
is that the Soviets are sort of wholesale lifting factories from the Soviet occupation zone and shipping them back to the Soviet Union. Wow. <laughs> and which really tells you something about how bad it was in the Soviet Union that even a piece of German territory that had been bombed regularly by Allied forces for years during the war still seemed more and better equipped than the Soviet Union, that it was worth dismantling or and taking apart entire industrial complexes and shipping them back thousands <laughs> across half the continent. That says a lot. I read we read about the Berlin airlift. How, how did that shape relations between the two governments that were created at the time, the, the GDR, the German Democratic Republic in the east and the, the Federal Republic of Germany in the west? Yeah. So so the Berlin airlift is actually a, a sort of critical waypoint in the story to their becoming two Germanys. The airlift starts uh, in 1948 uh, and goes in in 1949. And and the end result of sort of that story is the creation of two distinct Germanys. When the airlift is happening, there's a sort of informal arrangement in which the Soviet zone is on one side and and the Western powers have pooled their uh, capabilities in the East. And, and Berlin is weird. Mm-hmm. Right? So Berlin is a tiny island inside the, well inside the Soviet zone. And so, but because it had been the capital of Nazi Germany, it too is divided in a microcosm, a, a tiny version of the quadripartite, the four power occupation of the whole country. So in practice, you have these weird little pockets, a French pocket, a British pocket, an American pocket in West Berlin, deep in the heart of the Soviet zone of occupation. And so in 1948, relations are pretty bad already between uh, the Western powers on one side and the Soviet Union on the other side. Uh, And so so certainly uh, we're by 1948 in a period that most historians would say certainly the Cold War had started. Mm. And so Stalin, uh, who's still the leader of the Soviet Union at the time, sees uh, the possibility of using access to West Berlin as a a squeeze, right? A way to uh, exert a little influence. And what, so so the Soviets block access to West Berlin, to the American zone, to the, the British zone, the French zone, and the allies are trying to figure out how they will respond. And they undertake an incredible, uh, really like just unfathomable set of logistics in which they (laughs) supply West Berlin by the air alone. So they're landing planes multiple times a minute on airstrips in West Berlin to bring coal, to bring food, to keep the population of West Berlin sustained and, and free. And so ultimately in 1940 or the spring of 1949, the Soviets back down. Uh, and and then so you end up with this situation that is a very fragile uh, stalemate, right? Where West Berlin remains British, French, American, East Berlin remains Soviet, and it's still tucked in this Soviet sector. How awkward. <laughs> Yeah, how awkward. <laughs> it would not be your first choice of, of location no. or design. I, I, the, the 50s must have been a weird time for re, uh, residents in the city. Um, but from what I understand, 
those residents in the East, although they were not allowed to leave East Germany, East Berlin, they were still able to go back and forth for, tra uh, you know, to visit relatives and for work. How apparent was the disparity between the two sides to these residents and what was that like? Yeah, so Berlin ends up this very strange city in the 1950s. You have people who are living their lives all across the city, right? Friends meeting from West Berlin and East Berlin, people crossing sectors to go to work all the time, as you say. But that means that West Berlin for the Western powers is also a place of immense potential opportunity because it basically becomes like a department store window. You can show off everything that's amazing about the Western way of life, whether that's consumer goods or uh, produce, packed grocery stores, and, and all of these things that matter, and don't forget, you have a population who has just lived through World War II. Uh, and so these this, this degree of security has an immense appeal. And so West Berlin receives a, a huge amount of support to make it a vibrant uh, city, to make it uh, have all the sorts of bells and whistles of a, of a great uh, and wonderful capital because it's making the case for, uh, for the Western way of life in, in a very ideologically charged environment, right, of the Cold War. And so even though West, West Berlin is not the capital, uh, mm -hmm. the, cap the West German capital is in Bonn, the East German government stays in East Berlin. Uh, still, West Berlin becomes this showcase. Uh, and so that makes it increasingly difficult for the East German government to make the case to its people that their system, uh, a system based on, on communist thinking, was indeed the superior one. It sounds like a case of bad PR. Yes. Uh. <laughs> Very. <laughs> Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all have stress and anxiety we carry around as we go about our everyday life. 
At The Alarmist, we know it's always better to say it out loud and talk it through. Whenever I stress about the sinking of the Titanic, I don't sit with those thoughts in a dark room. I turn on the lights and dive right into it. Therapy is a great place to get things off your chest and work through what's really going on. Maybe you can't stop spiraling or catastrophizing. I started therapy over 10 years ago and never looked back. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Heck, we sometimes change our minds and rethink the verdict at The Alarmist. And that's also okay when it comes to therapists. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com Alarmist today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Alarmist. When was this Western migration at its peak? When do people start packing up and leaving East Germany? So there is a sort of steady flow throughout much of the 1950s, but it really starts to accelerate in, in the early 1960s. And so you have, after 1958, another sort of big crisis over the future of Berlin because uh, Nikita Khrushchev, the rather colorful and eccentric leader of the Soviet Union, uh, threatens to right, reopens the question of Berlin status and threatens that the Soviets will sign a separate peace treaty with the East Germans. And this is seen as uh, damaging to the Western position in Berlin, huge diplomatic crisis, uh, lots of sort of anxiety about whether or not nuclear war is going to happen over mm. this tiny island uh, tucked in the Soviet zone. So 1950, late 1958, 59, 60, 61, those are pretty tense uh, years. And in all of that period, the number of East Germans leaving the country through uh, through the sort of Berlin uh, gap is, is increasing and accelerating. How, how did they dis or who decided to finally put up the wall and what was the thinking behind that? Um, how, how did the Soviets go about doing it actually in 1961? So it's really the East Germans actually who are the ones who push for a solution mm. to this problem, right? That they need to stabilize the state somehow, which means that they need to stop the outflow of people. Because part of the problem is, is that the people who are leaving are the people the East German state wants. They're talented people. They're well-educated people. They're the kind of people you need to run a remotely successful state. And if they're fleeing en masse to make a life somewhere else, you have a real problem about whether your state is going to work. And so it takes uh, the East German leadership, um, and particularly Walter Ulbricht, who's in charge at the time, some time to convince the Soviets that this is actually worth doing. But ultimately, uh, Ulbricht succeeds. Uh, they talk the Soviets into it. And, and that's the foundation for the barbed wire, the initial barbed wire being strung across the inner city border uh, in August of 1961. What was the reaction from the public after seeing this wall suddenly go up, seemingly, you know, the next from one day to the next? Yeah, uh, I, I think there is it depends on who whose reaction Right, we're we're thinking about. I think for many West Berliners, for many West Germans, it's an incredibly sad day. Mm. I mean, it's a huge change for those living in Berlin. It's a huge change of the fabric of their day to day life. You could once freely transit between sectors, 
you could see friends and loved ones who lived on the other side of the city, and that becomes impossible overnight. So there are cases of children being separated from their parents. Uh, people lose jobs because they can't go to work anymore. So there's a, a huge amount of, of dislocation and sadness. And what it represents is obviously devastating. It's sort of the final illustration that maybe the division of Germany into two Germanys is not going to be temporary. It's It, it could be a, a longer lasting reality. But for others, though it is it is sad at a human level, there are a number of policymakers uh, who see it as a positive hmm. because it's going to help stabilize the situation in Berlin, which is still very much being contested, right? This is still in the in the Berlin crisis. And so there are hopes that by solving the most immediate problem, it might lift some of the tension to uh, and prevent a bigger conflict from breaking out over the city. And so this leads to a lot of debate between, say, uh, Americans in the Kennedy administration, uh, John Kennedy as president at the time, and uh, West Germans, particularly the mayor of West Berlin, Willy Brandt, who is sort of devastated that the Americans are willing to live with uh, live with the Berlin Wall. How big was the threat of of a nuclear war? How big of a factor was it in just having everyone just say, we're not going to get involved. It's it's a fairly large factor because, and it's not just a nuclear war, it's any type of, of war between the two uh, superpowers at the time. I mean, you have in the early 1960s, uh, two superpowers who have put an immense amount of money into arming to the teeth uh, to wage this Cold War. Um, and and so there's always the risk that it could, it could bubble over. Um, there's not long after the Berlin Wall is built, there's a sort of famous showdown of two tanks at Checkpoint Charlie uh, mm. in central Berlin, right on the border uh, between the the two halves of the city. So there is always this um, this sense of concern about what what happens in Berlin. How does the wall change and evolve throughout the 28 years? Yeah, it's. It's interesting because I think when we think of the wall now, we think of this big, incredibly fortified thing that has all these layers and dogs and special spring-loaded guns. And 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 that wasn't the initial wall, right? When you look at pictures from August 1961, I mean, it's first barbed wire just coiled along <laughs> the ground, then slowly cinder blocks and other concrete pieces uh, appear the wall that we know is really a product of several um, evolutions because the East Germans were always trying to improve on this uh, this defensive fortification, right, that they called the anti-fascist protective barrier. Uh, and so so there were, were sort of constant improvements <laughs> made to, to the wall uh, in order to make it more effective. And during this time... How many people were able to cross the wall or or leave East Ger uh, Berlin, and and those that did, how did they do it? How, I know there were some that who also lost their lives. What was that like? Yeah, so you have a number of people who the wall doesn't deter from trying to leave East Germany. It just makes it harder. Uh, so. Uh, about 171 people are killed uh, over that 28-year period trying to cross 
the wall um, and and estimates put about 5,000 East Germans managed to escape. And they did so in wild and crazy ways. People hid in cutouts, in cars, uh, people made sort of homemade uh, hot air balloons to try and fly over. People swam and snorkeled because there's part of the wall that ran through the river uh, in Berlin and through uh, the lakes out where Berlin meets Potsdam. Uh, so you have tons, people build tunnels uh, wow. to sneak friends and family across. Uh, there's a whole sort of robust uh, infrastructure to try and get East Germans over into uh, into West Germany. Wow. Let's fast forward to the 80s. Can you walk us through the events that led to the fall of the wall? What kind of pressure was the Soviet Union under? Why did they make the decision to relax their immigration laws? Yeah, so in 1989 is a huge year of political change. So at that point, uh, Mikhail Gorbachev has been general secretary of the Soviet Union for five years and is sort of famous for undertaking a program of openness and transparency, right? We know it as glasnost and perestroika. Uh, and, and Gorbachev is trying to remake the, the Soviet role in the world. And part of that is about all of these Soviet uh, allies, who we often think of as Soviet satellite states, including uh, East Germany, but also Hungary and Poland and, and Czechoslovakia, Bulgaria, Romania. And so you have a whole set of political upheaval that's taking place in 1989. Uh, you have uh, moves towards a more pluralistic system in Poland already in the spring. Over the summer, the Hungarians start to relax the border controls between them and Austria, who are their neutral neighbors, taking down the fencing between them. And all of this starts to encourage East Germans to look for other ways out. And so over 1989, a number of East Germans try and leave. They go to West German embassies in Prague, the Czech capital of Czechoslovakia. Um, they try to sneak across the Hungarian-Austrian border uh, by land. And so this this exodus is starting to increase uh, again, which is really putting pressure on the, the East German government. And at home, uh, by the fall, the East German government is then facing a series of protests that keep getting bigger and bigger. So they start with about 70,000 in early October in the streets of Leipzig. By November 4th, uh, there's half a million uh, protesting in Alexanderplatz in sort of the heart of East Berlin. Wow. And so that's the backdrop for what becomes the sort of famous night of the fall of the Berlin Wall, November 9th, 1989. And there, that is a great reminder that history is filled with accidents. <laughs> Right? That uh, there can be all of these signs that communism is in trouble, that uh, the system is struggling, that Gorbachev's ideas are starting to change the way people think about the world they live in. But sometimes you just need something really stupid to happen, <laughs> right? Like just somebody to mess up. There is a, an element of uncertainty and contingency and just that's so random that that happened. And that is the story of November 9th, right? This SED, uh, so East German communist official, 
He goes up to give a news conference. It's your standard East German news conference. It's long, it's boring, he's rambling. He has a stack of papers with new rules about uh, changes in the travel restrictions for East Germans that are supposed to slightly make it easier, slightly make it easier for East Germans to move uh, and leave the country. He gets about an hour into this press conference, gets peppered with a question from a foreign journalist, and he uh, kind of shuffles his papers around and then uh, says a very generic, you know, uh, that travel restrictions will be uh, relaxed and East Germans will be able to cross the border with West Germany, right, that they'll be able to, including in West Berlin. And, you know, the the assembled journalists follow up and say, well, well when? Okay, and he goes, effective immediately. <laughs> now, that's not at all what his papers say, right? But but that's what he says in this press conference. And it becomes the top news story on uh, West German news that night. And if we think about the 1980s, East Germans are watching a ton of West German news. They're using bunny ears and all that kind of technology to watch West German news. So it's being beamed into East German living rooms, including in East Berlin. And so people start to go and wait at the border and yeah. see if they're able to cross. They want to know what they said effective immediately. <laughs> can I actually cross? Can I, for the first time in 28 years, or think of a person younger than 28, for the first time in my life, can I cross? <laughs> and the border guards have no clue what to do. Uh, they're just, the crowds keep getting bigger and because people are calling friends and more people are watching the news and hearing the news. And I mean, it's like a big game of citywide game of telephone and people are arriving and very quickly the border guards are outnumbered. And so what do you do? Do you, how do you control a crowd? And I, 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 I'm not equipped. <laughs> no, no, they're not equipped either. And they have many more people than just the two of us. And lots yes. of training. So, so they ultimately, there's a, at Bornholmerstrasse, there is a guard, Harold Jaeger, who call, is calling his superiors, trying to find out, what do you want me to do with all of these people? And he finally decides that the best thing to do is just open the gates and let people cross freely. And that very quickly becomes the scenes of what we associate with that night, with November 9th, right? You have West Berliners who meet uh, meet folks crossing the border with champagne and sect, and uh, there is just joy in the streets, right? Complete, unadulterated joy, because something that had seemed impossible is suddenly happening. Uh, and, and that becomes the point of no return, right? How do you... How do you put the barrier back up? You can't. You can't. You can't say oopsie daisy. Yeah, this is a real like toothpaste is not going back in the tube situation. Yes. And so and so it, it changes everything uh, because suddenly there is this sense of hope, this sense of possibility that the the old fixed world that divided Berlin, that divided Germany is no longer. Wow. Just it's magnificent. So unfortunately, we are running out of time. But I have to ask you this very important question. We ask all of our guest experts this question. At the end of the end of the day, if you had to pick a person or thing, it could be a concept that you think is to blame for the Berlin Wall. Who or what would that be? Communism as a system. 
it wouldn't have if communism as a system was not around there the the wall would never have gone up i would yeah there's a little bit more of a causal chain there i think but the the root cause to me is that communism as a system in east germany failed to provide a sufficient social structure that east germans wanted to stay in their country and if they had left on mass then the government wouldn't have needed to fence them in to keep them there they had a bad <laughs> we kept talking about this in the episode but just problem of bad pr on their hands <laughs> yes ba- bad pr and pretty poor goods to back up the pr yes <laughs> Susie, thank you so much for joining us today and helping us understand this incredible moment in history. It was wonderful to be here. Thanks so much. If you'd like to hear our post-interview discussion and final verdict, head over to Patreon and subscribe. Your support is greatly appreciated. Check out our show notes for a link or head over to patreon.com slash the alarmist. And stay tuned because next week we'll be discussing the death of Houdini. The Alarmist. Powered by ACAST. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.